Father, I am just of dust. I make so many mistakes. I'm a weak man. So, Father, in spite of my weakness, may your strength and may your love and your grace be manifested from the sacred desk. Father, I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I be a blessing and not a curse to your people. Father, these precious souls have made a decision to spend the Sabbath afternoon to gain a blessing. They could have easily gone to the beach or have other social activities, but they have desired to come here expecting a blessing. So in spite of myself, may they be blessed by the preaching of the word. And that our mind, heart, and deed be touched of the nearness of your son's soon return. We ask that you do something special here today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Yesterday, Pastor Kayla Thompson gave a powerful message on expectations and how churches and parents and society places expectations upon us that is not a coincidence in the Bible and is oftentimes oppressive and diverts us from the calling that God has for us. That those expectations give us bondage from doing what God calls us to do. And these expectations often come in oppressive ways. Now, I know one thing. We give the enemy too much credit for being overt. He's very subtle. And in fact, the enemy uses something very interesting. He uses the expectations of the media upon us. If you don't watch Star Wars, you're looked as weird. If you haven't watched Frozen, it's like, what are you? You're weird. If you don't dress in skinny jeans, you're thought about as weird for guys. Back in my days, we had baggy jeans. Go figure. From one extreme to another. So we have all sorts of these expectations, and if we don't conform to the, to the expectations society has for us, we are seen as straight-laced, odd, or extremists. You see, even though fashion... We like to be on, in style. And even though we want to fit in in society, it's natural. As a school teacher, praise God for uniforms, amen? But if they're not uniforms, and back in my day when we didn't wear uniforms, people got bullied for not wearing a certain thing. Is that correct? Back in my day, it was starter jackets. You know, starter jackets, Raiders caps. Shows you my era, yes. I'm old, yes. But... If we don't conform to that, we're looked upon as being reviled or bullied. You see, one of the most bullying agents right now is Hollywood and the media. And what they're doing is they are portraying and promoting a new morality. And if you don't conform to that morality, you are looked upon as someone that is an enemy of society. In fact, when Angus Jones, anyone remember him? Angus Jones gave his heart to Jesus. Angus Jones was convicted about the Adventist message at a Bible study at an Adventist church in the valley, and he decided to leave. He was the number one child actor, and he left and renounced his show. And this is what TMZ uh, said about him. Said that he was in a cult, that he had mental illness, that he should be evaluated for schizophrenia. We see here that expectations is causing oppression. 
You see, if we don't conform to a certain expectation of society, if we don't conform to a certain expectation of popular culture, soon and very soon, we're going to be looked upon as very weird. If we want to keep the biblical basis of our beliefs and our doctrines, soon and very soon, liberty of conscience will be threatened. And it's almost here. And that's why the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, notice what the Bible says, and be not conformed to this what? world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, we want to please people. Isn't that correct? But you know what, brothers and sisters? We could be the most hated person on this planet, but my Bible tells me that 10,000 upon 10,000 angels are there that churn for me. My Bible tells me that the Father Son and the Holy Spirit are cheering for me. My Bible tells me that the unfallen worlds are cheering for me. So my Bible tells me that I am the majority when I do feel like the minority here on this earth. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidences of things not seen. And what God is trying to teach us at this time is to go beyond the expectations of society. Go beyond the expectations of culture. Go beyond the expectations of fashion. Go beyond the expectations of your parents and do what's good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And what does God do for us? John 10, 10, God gives us life and life more abundantly. See, when you please God, you're blessed. See, when you please God, you prosper. When you please God, you have the prosperity and the security and the confidence that you cannot have from any other human being here on earth. And God is trying to teach us not to conform to society, not to conform to the media, but please that of God. And we can only please God by asking God for that power. Amen. And we can only please God by knowing that he first loved us. And God says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, this is one of my favorite verses and Pastor Caleb's favorite verses, yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Messed up and dirty as we were, Christ still embraced us. Remember the story of the prodigal son. Now, the prodigal son had pig's garment. He was in defiled pig's pen eating pig's food. Now, in the Jewish economy, the pig is the most dirtiest animal. If you touch that, it's a sin. But when the father saw the sun coming on the horizon, the father didn't care that he had pig's stench or pig's mud or pig's excrement. The father embraced the son, and Jesus does that for you and I. We get abused by society. We get abused by expectations. But when we learn to go against the popular current, when we learn and see the unseen that we are the majority by following the Bible, by loving Jesus and keeping his commandments through his power, then there is a blessing even beyond the persecution that will come to us here today. You see, we're in an age right now where in the city of Houston, the Houston mayor in 2014 tried to require all pastors to submit sermon notes that talked about homosexuality violating our freedom of rights. We're in an age right now where the United States Supreme Court, this is what the New York Times says, the United States Supreme Court may soon liberate the biblically conservative church from old prejudices that should have long ago been jettisoned, forcing it into rightly bowing to the enlightenments of modernity. In the words of a recent writer in the New York Times, in other words, what the New York Times is saying is that the church that follows the Bible need to bow down to modern expectations and modern morality. 
That's the expectations of the government to you and I. And in my parents' hometown in Gresham, Oregon, a Christian couple decided not to make a cake for a same-sex marriage couple. You know, they just nicely said, we believe in the biblical marriage of man and woman, and we don't feel comfortable making a cake for you. And they were fined recently $136,927 for refusing to make a cake, for following the Bible. Religious persecution is very real here today. And it's connected to the expectations of the media, popular culture, and society. But God wants us to go beyond society and be secure in his love. And his love is life and life more abundantly. You see, nowadays, our Seventh-day Adventist ministers are being persecuted. Dr. Eric Walsh, he spoke for GYC Southwest and church revivals. And in fact, it's interesting, the people that made light of his positions on the papacy and his position on same-sex marriages, they went on YouTube and watched GYC sermons that Dr. Walsh preached, and he lost his job. We're living in an age where it's more and more unpopular, and it's expected of us to adhere to what the government tells us and what media tells us and what celebrities tell us for what is right. You see, right now we're in a society. We're in an election year. We're almost in an election year, amen? And do you know Ellen White counsels us not to declare our candidacy or allegiance to a politician? And I see in all of social media people arguing about, let's vote for Ben Carson or let's vote for this person or that person. Brothers and sisters, there is a reason why we should not vote for a politician. Ellen White says, the gospel worker says that we should cast no faith in political parties. Why? Because right now, the liberal left is right now seeking to oppress Christian values. And what's going to happen is society is going to be more and more unstable. There's going to be more terrorism and more attacks and more natural disasters. Then the ultra-right is going to say, we need to get back to God. But their way of getting back to God is not by love. It's not by a choice, but by legislation, by force authority through the government. From one extreme to another. So if you vote liberal or Republican, you're voting from the same side. And right in the center is you and I, Seventh-day Adventists. And God has commissioned us to declare liberty of conscience. Amen. That people need a choice. And people deserve a choice. It is, as Pastor Kayla said, and he was quoting the Declaration of Independence, it is an inalienable natural right for us to choose who we should choose, not be forced by government. Now, why did God raise the United States of America? Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 13 and 16. Are we ready to study the Bible a little bit here today? Is that okay? I'm not like a rah-rah preacher. I just like to teach. Is that okay? Amen? All right. Revelation chapter 12, verse 13 and 16. The Bible says, when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman. So we have a dragon and we have a woman, right? which brought forth the man-child, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So you have a dragon that's seeking to kill the woman. Woman's in the wilderness for time, times, and half a time. I don't have a time to prove it, but that is 1,260 literal years. For 1,260 years, the woman was in the wilderness. 
The dragon then spews water to try to drown the woman, but the earth opens up and allows the woman to live. Now, we want to understand what the dragon is or who the dragon is, who the woman is, and who, what the water represents and what the earth represents. And let's do this quickly. The dragon represents Satan. The woman, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, represents the church that was in the wilderness from the dragon or Satan that persecutes for 1,260 years. But the serpent, the dragon, spews water. In Psalms 18.4, that waters represents the floods of ungodly men. Satan used ungodly men and ungodly government to try to destroy the church. But the woman is helped by the earth. Now, water represents populated people. What would earth represent? A relatively unpopulated area. So the woman then is helped by a relatively unpopulated area that helps her to survive. And we know that that woman, according to history, was the pilgrims coming here to North America where they were oppressed by papacy and by the Anglican church and they came here to the United States or to what is going to be the United States to experience religious liberty. Our nation was brought forth because of freedom of choice, to worship however we want no matter what religion. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 16, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened the mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out his mouth, and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commands of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the woman is helped by the earth. The woman then establishes herself on the earth. The church is now established here in North America, and the dragon that declares war on the woman, the remnant of her seed, who is now in America, that remnant of her seed that keeps the command of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, that is the Advent movement. Amen. But do you know who was in the Mayflower? Someone very special. James White, Life's Incidents, page 9. My father descended from one of the pilgrims who came to America in the ship Mayflower and landed upon Plymouth Rock. One of the founders of the Seventh Avenue Church, his ancestor, was in the Mayflower. Literally, when the Mayflower sailed from Europe to the United States, the remnant of her seed was carried in that ship. We are a church of destiny, brothers and sisters. And God is calling us as a church to declare liberty of conscience, not only in government, not only in politics, but also in the church and also in the home. Because if we don't experience it in the churches, if we don't experience it in our homes, if we don't experience it in our call porter teams, in our Bible work teams, in our evangelistic meetings, how can we declare religious liberty to the world? And so inspiration says in Great Conversation, page 441, inspiration says, freedom of religious faith was also granted, every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. These principles are the secret of its, what? Power and prosperity. So the prosperity and power of the United States come from republicanism, which is the separation of church and state, and the values of Protestantism. What is the values of Protestantism? That we can all have an individual experience with God. We can study the Bible on our own without a priest, without a clergy telling us what to do. 
These principles are the secret of his power and prosperity. The oppressed and downtrodden throughout Christendom have turned to this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores, and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations of the earth. God knew and foretelled, and he gave this nation as a place where we experience religious liberty to develop his remnant church, to declare to the whole world his final gospel message so that we can go home. But our freedoms are being taken away, slowly but surely. And God is asking us to understand his character even deeper. The character of love and the character of choice. We talked about the oppression of government. What is God's government like? Notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 33. We want to study about God's government, amen? Let's talk about the government of God. The Bible says, for the Lord is our what? The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our, and he will what? Even though he is the author of the law that condemns us for our sins, he is also the one that will save us. He is a God that freely pardons and forgives us for our transgressions. And what else is the government God? What is God's law based upon? Notice what the Bible says in Romans 13 verse 10. The Bible says, love working no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the what? Of the law. So the Ten Commandments, the law of God, is based upon love. And love is a choice. In fact, notice what Inspiration says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 33. Inspiration says, the law of love being the foundation of the government God, the happiness of all intelligent beings depends upon their perfect accord with its great principles of righteousness. God desires from all his creatures the service of love, service that springs from an appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure, what do you say? No pleasure in what? In a, what? Forced obedience. And to all he grants freedom of will that he may render him voluntary service. You know what we often do? And as I deal with parents and doing pastoral ministry, Oftentimes I've discovered parents mean well. They want their kids to be in the church, but they use the wrong methods to try to have that in conclusion. Instead of showing them in a relational way or modeling them the love of Jesus, modeling them that love and awakeneth love, they, all they say is, you better go to church now or else. You better be good for that next Christmas gift. You have to do this and you have to do that in order for me to show affection to you. But inspiration says that God takes no pleasure in forced obedience. And we have to unlearn our cultural upbringing. We have to unlearn our cultural DNA. I'm from an Asian culture, and it's very works-based. You have to get those straight A's. You have to go to Harvard. Not only that, you have to look good. You have to have the latest fashions. Or oh, if you don't look good, you have to get plastic surgery. That's true. Or double eyelids. You have to do this and you have to do that. But God takes us ugly and deformed as we are. We're wretched, poor, blind, and naked, but Jesus still embraces us. We have to show to our children that our God is not a God of vengeance, of anger, but a God that freely receives and freely forgives. And so, Jesus is a proponent 
of voluntary service. You see, in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus was in front of Pilate. Now, pagan Rome was the most powerful nation on earth. It was the United States of America at that time, a nation that is turning from a republic into an oppressive imperial power that would, in the future, would merge church and state and give rise to the seat of the papacy. And Jesus, in front of the council of Pilate, said something very interesting. Jesus answered to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants what? Jesus never operated by force. That I should not be delivered to the Jews, and now is my kingdom not from hence. You see, Jesus believed in liberty of conscience. Jesus believed in the separation of church and state. And these principles that we should understand for ourselves in our homes and also in our families. Now, I did a study. How does Jesus govern the church? You see, the Bible says that Christ is the head of the church. Isn't that correct? In fact, notice what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 and 25. The Bible says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, men, when they read that text, they abuse it. Amen? Have mercy, right? Especially those that believe in, in headship of males, they like say, oh, you know, see, you can, wife, you got to listen to me no matter what. I'm the head of the house. Continuing on, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Sounds good for guys, isn't that correct? Let's continue on, though. But notice this. This turns the tables. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You know what Jesus does? Jesus, although it's not his fault, he takes responsibility for our sins. You see, men, if you really want to be the head of the household, no matter what your wife does, you take responsibility and not complain. Because that's what Jesus does. You see, remember in the Garden of Eden, you know what Adam said? It was you that made the woman that caused me to sin. Who was Adam blaming for sin? God. And what did God do? Did God like say, oh, how dare you say that, Adam? He could have said that. Is that correct? But God commanded his love towards us, yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He said, even though it's not by right my fault, I will make it my fault. You see, Jesus came as a servant leader. What did he do for the disciples? He washed their feet. So, man, if you want to be the head of the household, you should wash the feet of your wife. Amen? Am I saying a hard saying? I see a lot of women saying amen to that. And continuing on, verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. In other words, our natural predisposition is self-preservation for our own bodies. Isn't that correct? Survival instinct. But now our survival instinct is now transferred to the one that we love. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it, even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You see, Jesus willingly died for the church. Men, are you willing to die for your wife's salvation willingly, as Jesus did? You see, 
Why do I talk about these principles? Because marriages are more and more being oppressive. We have abusive and oppressive men that beat their wives and try to beat them into submission. On the other hand, you have cycle-controlling women that try to control guys and be suspicious of everything that the guy is doing wrong. So Satan is pitting both extremes together, and the home is being divided. But Jesus wants to give us a better model. Jesus wants to give us a model of self-sacrificing love. No matter what the wife does, we still show love. And inspiration says in Adventist homepage 47, paragraph 1, can she find true peace and joy in his affection? Will she be allowed to preserve her individuality? Or must her judgment and conscience be surrendered to the control of her husband? You see, we like to control people. We won't impose our identity upon another person, but God is not like that. God gives us a choice. You see, a forced individuality and a forced way of doing that, that is the spirit of the papacy. And oftentimes, I'm sorry to say, brothers and sisters, we may say that we're part of the remnant, but we act papal in the home. And we act papal in the church. Can she honor the Savior's claim as supreme? Will body and soul, thoughts and purposes be preserved pure and holy? These questions have a vital bearing upon the well-being of every woman who enters the marriage relation. So how did Christ give himself for the church? And those are the Bible says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Bible says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to what? Minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. And what qualifies husbands to marry their wives is that of self-sacrificing service. And when men take the lead and become servant leaders in the home, we will see religious liberty develop in the home and that man doesn't have to tell the woman what to do or try to force the woman what to do. He is leading by example. He's leading by love and that love awakens love and therefore there is a voluntary submission to one another as Christ and the church have a relationship with one another. Thy will be done as in heaven, as it is on earth. Now, how did Jesus deal with those that betrayed him? You see, brothers and sisters, we have an interesting thing. I've been in many Bible worker teams back in the days. I've been in evangelistic meetings back in the days. And there's always one or two people that don't conform to the rules. There's always one or two people that were just here. They were not serious about the work. And oftentimes, at back in my day, I was so angry, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get the plane ticket and tell them to go home. There was those weak links, as we say. But how did Jesus treat the quote-unquote weak links? And what's what the Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71. The Bible says, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he is that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus knew that Judas was the one that would sell him to the Jews and to Rome. But did Jesus kick out Judas for being a disciple? He let him remain in his position, even though he would make the bad choice. You see, part of liberty of conscience and freedom is allowing people to make the wrong choice. Even though it knows it will hurt you. 
And oftentimes, we're like saying, there's so many problems in the church. There's so many pastors that don't preach the message. There's so many this and that. There's so many administrators and teachers. The church is an apostasy, this, that, and whatever. But Jesus, how he treats Judas, is how we should treat one another. In fact, notice what the Bible says in John chapter 13, verse 26. The Bible says, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for that intent. He spake this unto him. Notice this. Jesus did not expose Judas in public. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus didn't call out Judas' sin. Jesus gave Judas the choice. What thou doest, doest quickly. He didn't stop Judas from making the wrong decision because he recognized that that's the choice that Judas makes. And you know why Jesus allowed Judas to be with the disciples? You know, Jesus already knew that he was going to betray him. Isn't that correct? But the Bible says that love, what is love? Beareth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. In other words, it's Jesus' nature that Jesus' love is so deep that he would beareth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, and believe all things, that Judas would still make the right decision, regardless of his prophetic destiny. And oftentimes when we see a pastor and we see a minister and we see an administrator not doing how we like it or how we see in the Bible and spirit of prophecy, we oftentimes say, oh, he's over, he's an apostasy, he's done more. I see it all in social media. Who is another person that Jesus embraced that made bad mistakes? Notice what the Bible says in Luke 22, verse 34. The Bible says, and he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before, and thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Here Jesus knew that Peter would betray him three times when he needed him the most. Jesus needed a friend the most. He needed a friend when he was suffering for the sins of humanity. He needed his best friend, his inner circle. He knew that Peter would betray him. Did Jesus say, Peter, you're no longer my friend? He still kept Peter as his friend, regardless of how he made the wrong decision. In fact, notice what the Bible says in John 21, verse 16. The Bible says, he said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto me, yea, love thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, feed my sheep. Jesus never removed Judas or Peter from their positions, even though they would make the wrong decisions. And sometimes we have so many expectations that once you're in ministry, once you are totally a position, that you have to be perfect, you have to be right, you have to do everything all correctly, and if you don't do it that way, you're over. It's gone. New officer. Jesus didn't deal that way. Jesus respected the choice, even the wrong choice, with you and I. Now, we talk about the shaking, is that correct? The wheat and the tares. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 27. The Bible says, And the servants of the householders came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto him, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while we gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. Time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat unto my barn. In other words, you know why God allows sin in the church? You know why God allows quote-unquote ungodly people in the church? You know why God allows abusers in the church? Because he wants to give them the opportunity to make the right choice. Love beareth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. You see, we, too many times, and I am guilty of this, we look at somebody, and I have a problem with this, and I have an issue with this, and I'm being transparent. When I see someone that's doing things, now according to my beliefs in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, in my mind, I'm like, oh man, he's done for. Probation's closed for that guy. Seven last plagues, here you come for that guy. But that's not how Jesus operates. The wheat and the tares go together to the harvest. You see, Jesus will continue. He will continue to knock on the hearts of our doors of our hearts till we make a very final decision. Until we make a final decision where nothing can change our minds, Jesus will continue to knock on the hearts of both wheat and tares. Now, how did Jesus treat Satan when he rebelled? Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 to 9. The Bible says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angel fought against a dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there a place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. It's interesting. Satan led an insurrection in heaven, but Jesus did not destroy him. Why is that? Patriots and Prophets, page 42. Even when he was cast out of heaven, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan. Since only the service of love can be acceptable to God, the allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. The inhabitants of heaven and of the world, being unprepared to comprehend the nature or consequences of sin, could not have seen the justice of God in the destruction of Satan. Had he been immediately blotted out of existence, some would have served God from fear rather than from love. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. For the good of the entire universe, through ceaseless ages, he must more fully develop his principles that his charge against the divine government might be seen in the true light by all created beings, and that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his law might be forever placed beyond all question. Do you know what Jesus did? He gave Satan religious liberty. Freedom of choice. And Satan right now is demonstrating his side and his government here on earth. Satan is demonstrating his government through ISIS, which is the precursor of the merger of church and state. When you have a religious government entity that's oppressing, we see here ISIS, a preview and a trailer of things to come. But yet Jesus did not destroy Satan. Jesus gave Satan religious liberty. In contrast to Jesus, when Jesus was in ministry here on earth, there was another group that operated in the principles contrary to Jesus. Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 9, verse 22. The Bible says, and here we have Jesus. He healed this young man. From blindness. He was born in birth. 
He healed him on the Sabbath. You know the famous account. He spit clay and placed upon the eyes and he was healed. And you know what? The Pharisees, they were upset because Jesus, against what their expectation of religiosity is, he healed on the Sabbath. And what happened? What did the Pharisees do? John chapter 9, verse 22. These words spake the parents because they fear the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. You see, the Pharisee says that if you don't believe everything how we believe, if you don't follow however we believe, then you'll be kicked out of the church. And the parents were afraid. That's not how God operates. I believe in church discipline, brothers and sisters. I believe that there's a child abuser or an abuser or that, that Matthew 18, chapter 6 says that anyone that, that, that causes another person to sin or oppress somebody or abuses somebody, they should be dealt with in the church. But on the other hand, if their belief is contrary to my belief, if their thoughts are contrary to my thought, it is not my business to try to force them to change their minds, as the Pharisees did here. In fact, notice what the Bible says in John chapter 9, verse 28. Here the Pharisees came to the blind man that was healed and said, Who healed you? Isn't he a sinner? And the blind man that was healed was saying that, I don't think he's a sinner. He's of God. And notice what the Bible says in John chapter 9, verse 28 and 29. Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spake unto Moses, for as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. You see, oftentimes, even in our churches, we think that we're only qualified to teach and preach the word of God if we have a master's in divinity. We're only qualified to preach and teach the Word of God if we have a theology degree or a religion degree. And whenever a young person is excited about giving Bible studies and teaching, and I've heard cases after cases throughout the nation as I travel, there are pastors trying to shut down these Bible study groups. That is the spirit of the Pharisees. In fact, continue on. The Bible says, The man answered and said unto them, why herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes? Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, has it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not a God, he could do nothing. Here's this young man. He's giving his testimony of how God has done something special in his life. He's sharing an experience of the special supernatural power of God. And oftentimes when we have young people that are on fire for God and giving testimonies, oftentimes leadership often sprays water upon them to douse the fire. Saying, who are you to speak to us about the experience of God? You don't have a degree. Go to our colleges first before you talk to me. And well, how, did, how did the Pharisees react? John chapter 9, verse 34. They answered and said unto him, Thou was altogether born in sins, and thou dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. They disfellowshipped this young man for giving a testimony of what Jesus did for his life because he did not have the degree of the Pharisees. You see, brothers and sisters, I'm an educator, I'm a teacher. I prepare young people for college. But I know this. College does not validate who we are as a person. A degree doesn't validate who we are as a person. God validates who you are. 
And oftentimes, these SATs and these standardized tests, young people think that that score is a validation of who you are. No, that's not the validation. That's not the validation that you have because Jesus loves you no matter what test score you got. Jesus loves you no matter what occupation you have. You see, I hate to say this, I have two master's degrees. But do you know who taught me the Bible? High school dropout. GED people. Someone with no degree. Someone that was in the lowest of the low of the streets. Someone that didn't have the formal education of the normal lines of ministry. That's the one that taught me the Advent message. I learned from an early time in ministry that I should not discriminate people based upon a degree. We tested upon the Word of God. And God is trying to call us to go beyond our education. Now, if you're called to go to education, go to colleges, if you're called to go to seminary, praise God. God is calling you. Amen? I'm not trying to discount it. We have some very good seminary professors. We have some very good professors at Southern Adventist University. Amen, Pastor Arthur? Amen. We have very good professors like Professor Domstig in Andrews University. So our schools are not hopeless, amen? But there is an imbalance that if you do not have a certain education, especially in religious lines, you're not qualified to teach, and that is not biblical. You see, the early church was founded by 11 high school dropouts. Because in the Jewish economy, if you don't know the Torah by the age of 12, you can never go to the literary schools at that time. So Peter, James, and John, they were dropouts. But God also used an educated man named Paul. Is that correct? So he uses the unlearned and the learned to finish his work. And what else did the Pharisees do? What did the Pharisees do to Jesus? John chapter 5, verse 16. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Here Jesus is doing good. Jesus is solving the problems of the Jewish nation, but the same person that is seeking to deliver the Jewish nation into a better place is the same person that the Jewish leadership was persecuting because they weren't doing according to their expectations what he was doing on the Sabbath. What else did the Pharisees do to Jesus? Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 40. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. They were seeking not only to take Jesus out of the church, but they were seeking to kill Jesus for speaking his theological position. What else happened? John chapter 10, verse 33. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. The Jewish leadership, the church leadership, sought to kill Jesus because he didn't fit into their theological model an infringement of church and state. But what did Jesus do? How did Jesus react to this? Jesus did very, something very, very interesting. Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to. You see, Jesus, time wasn't yet. 
There are often times when we are oppressed and we are being discriminated and we're being persecuted and we want to oftentimes lash back. Isn't that correct? But there are times that we should walk away like Jesus did. There are times when Jesus calls us to stand up and there's times that we should avoid confrontation and continually pray and minister for them. But Jesus will tell us the right time. And that's why, notice what inspiration says in Great Conference, page 568, what the Pharisees are. There is a striking similarity between the church of Rome and the Jewish church at the time of Christ's first advent. While the Jews secretly trampled upon every principle of the law of God, they were outwardly rigorous in the observance of its precepts, loading it down with exactions and traditions that made obedience painful and burdensome. So the Jews professed to revere the law. So did Romanists claim to reverence the cross. They exalt the symbol of Christ's sufferings while in their lives deny him whom it represents. You know why Jesus died? Jesus died because his religious liberty was taken away. Jesus was put on the cross because his liberty of conscience was attempted to be taken away. And in fact, do you know the Pharisees, you know what they did to kill Jesus? John chapter 11, verse 47 48. The Bible says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees to counsel and said, What do we? For this man doth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Now let me stop here. You know why people want control? People want to control something because they fear they're going to lose something. Is that correct? And so because the Jewish nation feared that they would lose their positions, they would lose their outward positions, they were afraid of Jesus. In fact, why was the Jewish nation afraid? Notice the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4. And his, Jesus' fame, went throughout all Syria, and they brought him unto him all the sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that were palsy, and healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. They were afraid that Jesus was swaying the people to their favor. They were losing their power among the people. You see, the reason why the mark of the beast is going to be passed is the basis of control. We want to control the population. And when the Seventh-day Adventist Church does the healing work of Jesus like we do with Pathways to Health, when we do medical missionary work and people are being healed, and when we see that people outside of the normal lines of institutions are being healed and restored by the healing ministry of Jesus as we do the work and we see influence and people now seeing and with great significance our ministry, that will become a threat to society. Continue on. Notice what the Bible says in verse 50, John 11. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. They were afraid of losing their influence among the people. And so what did the Jewish nation do? The Jewish nation represents 
Religious power, the church, right? But who actually crucified Jesus? It was the Romans. It was the state. Isn't that correct? So you had the church and the state collaborate to kill Jesus at the cross. Religious liberty threatened. And what was the motive? The multitude, when Jesus was displayed by Pilate, and they cried out, away with them and away with them, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. In other words, we're going to bow down to the state. We're going to bow down to the government because the government has all the solutions to our problems, not God. Church and state merges to kill Jesus. Notice what inspiration says in Great Conversation, page 591. This is what the Pharisees did. God never forces the will or the conscience, but Satan's constant resort to gain control of those whom he cannot otherwise seduce is compulsion by cruelty. So, in other words, have you met someone that's all nice to you because they want something? And so they offer to take you out to eat. Is that correct? Or try to do some good things for you. But if you don't do to their expectations and adhere to what they want to do, what do they do? They start being mean-spirited. They're saying, you're, you're bad, you're terrible. They give you the cold shoulder. That's the principles of the papacy. Through fear or force, he endeavors to rule the conscience to secure homage to himself. To accomplish this, he works through both religious and secular authorities, moving them to the enforcement of human laws in defiance of the law of God. You see, society is moving to the point where if we don't follow society's expectations, we are seen as enemies of the state. Government is moving and religion is moving that if you don't go to the mainline religious beliefs, then you are considered the minority and you are considered not being part of the solution to the problem. You see, all of these things are all convalescing from society and government and also in the home with these undue expectations in the home, as we learned on Friday, coupled with the outside forces in government. And this is sandwiching together, and we are being forced more and more to adhere to the pressures that the enemy of souls is trying to seek us here in the last days. But Jesus wants us to experience true liberty. And that true liberty starts in our homes. That true liberty starts with our relationships and how we treat one another, how we treat our friends. Even if our friends do things that we do not like to do, they're still our friends. You give them the choice. You allow them to make the wrong decision. You don't try to force them. If your boyfriend and girlfriend doesn't do something that you like, you still treat them with respect and dignity. Religious liberty starts practically between one another and how we relate to ourselves in the home, in the churches, in our schools. And when we experience this and treat one another, when that love awakeneth love, then we can declare this message to the world. What is the final warning? Revelation 14, verse 9 and 10. The Bible says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark on his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Now, this sounds pretty, pretty mean-spirited. Is that correct? So anyone that worships the beast and his image and receives his mark will receive the wrath of God. But what does it mean to worship the beast and his image? 
What does it mean to worship the beast in the image of the Mars? Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 13, 7. The Bible says, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power is given over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So this beast wars with the saints. What else does this beast do? Revelation 13, 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. And the image of the beast should not speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. In other words, this beast power gives an institution of forced worship against the conscience. If you don't worship the way we want, you'll be killed, just like the Pharisees did to Jesus. Revelation 17, verse 5 and 6, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. You see, the reason why those that worship the beast in his image receives the judgment of God is because it is an abusive institution, abusive relationship that's seeking to cause people to worship against the dictates of our conscience. It is the ultimate form of abuse is trying to control and change the minds through force and through manipulation. And that's why God rains down his judgment upon them. But do you know even the system called Babylon, God is giving them religious liberty? Notice the Bible says in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, as I bring some final points. The Bible says, And these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mildly with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the greatest fallen has fallen, has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, what? My people, that ye not be partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her. So even within Babylon, there is a people that God is giving a choice to experience religious liberty. Even within this institution that is suppressing, that's committing forced worship upon the world of the great heinous of the character of the enemy of souls, God is giving this institution within it people that will hear the call of the true character of God and join the remnant fold because they experience religious liberty. The Bible says that this angel has great power. And what is this great power? Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to what? Forgive sins. So that power is the message that Jesus forgives you for your sins. Jesus forgives you for persecuting the Advent fold. Jesus is giving you the message that if you accept him and accept forgiveness, it is though that you have never sinned, this message of justification by faith. And once we demonstrate forgiveness, in our actions during this crisis hour when we have our homes taken away, when we are being run as enemies of the state, when we say, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing and demonstrating the character of Jesus, that will melt the hearts of those in Babylon and join the remnant fold here in the last days. Even in the final moments, God is giving the institution of false worship, of forced worship within that people, a opportunity to choose him and to be forgiven 
for the greatest oppressive acts in history. And God is telling us to deliver this message. You know what we need to be delivered from, brothers and sisters? We need to be delivered from our current reality. Because our current reality is not the reality that Jesus wants for us. You see, our current reality is that we have to pay bills. Our current reality is that we have to be dependent on groceries and food, and we need to be, get a paycheck. We need to be dependent upon this and that and, our, and whatever. Our current reality is that we work for a boss and we, ha- we have a job. Our current reality is things that are natural of this course in life, but there is an alternate reality, a true reality, which that is the kingdom of heaven. When we learn to see beyond our present condition, our present situation. See, those that will stand in the crisis hour will love Jesus. And to love Jesus is to trust him in his word. And when Jesus promises us that he will be with us always, even to the end of the world, and even though we have the fear and the natural fear of having our homes taken away, to be reviled by the majority, to be in all sorts of abusive situations, Our eye of faith can see the destiny that we will see beyond and be in the sea of glass. Singing the song of Moses and song of the Lamb. And as Jesus went through the cross for religious liberty, so too God is calling us to take up our cross for religious liberty here in the last days. What is Jesus' ministry here on earth? What did he do? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Jesus' ministry was one of liberty and freedom. Freedom from the abuses of government. Freedom from the abuses of the home. Freedom from the abuses of the church. Freedom from the abuses of relationships. Jesus came and went through persecution for us so that we could be made free through him. That's why the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, he shall be free indeed. The time is coming when we all have to make a choice. But how do we prepare for Jesus to come? To be more loving in our homes. To be more forgiving in our homes. To be more loving and forgiving to one another. To, to give people the power and empower them to make choices, even the wrong choices. And you still love them. And you take responsibility for them. And you try to help them even though they don't want help back. That's the way to prepare for Jesus' second coming. You see, when we do that, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And inspiration says, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then Christ will come. God is calling us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And the only way that we can experience this is that how much is Jesus has been so good to us. As defective and feeble as we are, even if we say we're present truth, we, you know, we know in our private lives, we don't go according to the Bible and spirit of prophecy. Let's be real. We have things in our lives that we need to get rid of. And yet we point the finger at somebody else and we think we're high and holy and mighty. 
But Jesus still say, my child, I'm not casting you out. Like I embraced Judas and Peter, you are still one of my own. And we, when we extend that practically to one another, the unity will come. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit will happen. And we will finish the work. And in the darkest moments of earth's history, there will be a demonstration of love never seen before in the history of the world. When the Bible says that iniquity abounds, that the love of many will wax cold, God's church will hotly be on fire with his love for one another and for him. It's not only to keep the Sabbath to be sealed, brothers and sisters, because the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, you break one, you break all the commandments. You see, there's going to come a time because we appreciate so much how we're forgiven for our sins that we will love God and we will love our neighbors, yea, our enemies as ourselves. And how did Jesus overcome his oppression? Looking into Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and sat down in the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus was at the cross, it looked absolutely hopeless. All his friends abandoned him. When Jesus was at the cross, it seemed like it was beyond control. Everyone, even those that healed him, were ridiculing him. But Jesus saw beyond his present condition and knew that many will be saved through his sacrifice. And when we go through our crisis, what will allow us to make it is see beyond our present condition and see what God has for us in glory. As C.C. sings the song, please meditate upon these words and ask ourselves, are we giving religious liberty to one another? Are we employing religious liberty to our relationships? to our family relations, to our friendships, to our Sabbath school class, to our corporate teams, to our evangelistic meetings. Once we experience religious liberty in a practical way, God will use us in a mighty way to give the last appeal to the United States for religious liberty to the nation. For taking up the cross of religious liberty for us, we thank you that Jesus came to demonstrate liberty and to give us liberty from the expectations and the oppressions of church and state. And Father, we need help. We need to unlearn what we've learned since childhood. We need to unlearn what was learned in the media. We have to unlearn so many things. But Father, with all things, through you, all things are possible. Father, help us to express religious liberty, that self-sacrificing love to one another in our homes, to family relationships, to marital relationships, to ministry relationships, and to church relationships. And brothers and sisters, as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you desire to say, Father, today, help me to experience religious liberty practically in my everyday relationships. Help me to be better in showing your love and giving choice to my fellow sphere of influence. Help me to reflect your character, the character of your love, of not forced obedience, but of choice, 
even to make the wrong decision and still love that person. Help me to have that power. Help that love to awaken in my heart. If that's your desire, I simply ask that you stand for that experience if that's your desire. Holy Father, our Father and God in heaven, Father, this sermon is for me. Father, you know how much I have issues with control. Have issues with accepting people even though they make the wrong choice. And so, Father, I thank you for giving me this message to rebuke myself. Father, as we are standing, there's so much to unlearn. But, Father, we claim the promise and inspiration that the Holy Spirit could teach us in a moment what literary institution could take years to teach us. Father, we thank you that today that we can make a new start, that we could give the freedom of choice to our brothers and sisters as you have given us the freedom of choice to choose you. Help us, Father, to reflect your character of love as the world grows more dark, more dim, and more cold. Help us to be hotter in our love for one another and our love for thee by doing a supernatural work and changing our hearts. Help us to behold Calvary and Jesus who took responsibility for all our sins. And although it was not his fault, made it his fault so that we could have the freedom of choice to experience liberty. We thank you, Lord, for this experience. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.